What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. Go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. All right. How is everybody doing out there? Hope you guys are well. Going to do a quick episode this week on Bitcoin game theory. It's going to be a commentary based on a couple articles written by Jeremy Garcia, originally published on Bitcoin Magazine, but then re-syndicated onto Zero Hedge recently. That's where I actually ran across them. The first one was published back in September, and this one, the newest one or the second part, just came out recently. Now I don't know Jeremy. Never ran across him in my contributions with Bitcoin Magazine, but uh, this was an interesting piece, and I'm glad that people are writing about Bitcoin's game theory. Uh, I've been talking about Bitcoin's game theory since probably 2016, back during the block size debate or block scale conflict or the scaling conflict whatever you want to call it back then and i have a degree in economics so i have some game theory background there and it's also just always been a passion of mine and so i read a lot about it and and research on my own so i don't agree with a lot of what jeremy put in here but I, again i think it's a good uh thing that people are writing about bitcoin's game theory because it brings more content out just like this, it stimulated me to do this episode. So the more that we can talk about game theory, the better we'll understand Bitcoin and we'll understand the world in general. So let's dive right into it. Of course, I'll link to both of these in the show notes. So the first one is titled, A Look at the Game Theory of Bitcoin. What is game theory? Simply put, if you are playing any game of strategy like chess, any move you make in the game will have to be countered by your opponent. The strategic decisions that you and your opponent make will ultimately determine who wins and who loses the game. I mean, this is obviously the right place to start trying to define game theory. And this is a good definition if, depending on what type of game theory you're talking about. So he says here that your moves must be countered by your opponent. Now, that is not always the case. I mean, yes, people will make moves, but most games, especially in economics, I think are cooperative games. So you're not trying to win or lose the game. You're trying to perpetuate the game. That's the difference between an infinite and a finite game. A finite game would be like baseball, okay? It has defined rules, it has sides, and there's a winner and loser at the end. Uh, an infinite game is when there is no loser and there is no winner. And the, the point of the game is strictly to avoid having a winner and a loser, to avoid the end of the game. Those types of games are going to be mostly cooperative, and that's what economics is, right? There is no end of the global economy. There's no end and, until you die, right? That, that's the end of your gameplay, but that's not the end of the game. So I just want to, because that, that little elaboration makes a lot of this kind of superfluous. What else do I have in my notes here? Okay, so when you're playing a infinitely repeated game, then you fall into equilibriums, right? Nash equilibriums, where you have no incentive to change your strategy from one move to the next. Your strategy, what you're doing, is the best possible for you. 
And actually, by definition, that's what economics is, right? You act according to your subjective valuations, and all actions have aims, whether you know it or not. Um, that's the Austrian in me saying, you know, von Mises saying that all human action is purposeful. And you, you're always going to go for your highest goal first. But anyway, most of the time we find ourselves in these Nash equilibriums one way or the other. And it's very hard to get out of that. You actually have to have somebody go counter to their incentives or their incentives change. So the payoffs change. In economics, we could say, you know, like any sort of producer is going to produce, uh, you know, with the same inputs and the same market conditions, most likely is going to produce the same amounts and sell to the same people and all that. But then there's going to be minor adjustments in the market structure, maybe the prices of inputs, maybe the prices that their products can command change. And so they have to change their strategy as well. So there is always changes, but no one is going to purposefully work against their aims and they can't, they, they cannot do that. So if the, the incentives are set up in a way where people will always, most of the time cooperate in this Nash equilibrium and they're unable to defect actually, because they're unable to go against their, their own incentives. The way you get out of a Nash equilibrium is simply that the conditions change. And so then you move on to the next thing and entrepreneurs are there to try to predict how the conditions will change and take advantage of that. When the conditions do change, yes, there's winners and losers because, you know, entrepreneurs, they'll be right, but they'll also be wrong. They'll actually be wrong more often than they're right. Uh, so there are winners and losers in that respect, but their gameplay doesn't stop because you failed. If your startup fails, that's not the end of your gameplay. You just move on to something else, right? Okay, and so then the last part of this opening, <laughs> and these are going to be most of my points here, and then I'm going to read a few more things in this article and try to apply those a little more. So um, the other thing is that Bitcoin is not a player in this game. Bitcoin is part of the environment. It's part of the terrain of the game. So he brings in chess. He says, th like chess, well, if chess had a... Uh, they have black and white squares in chess. Well, if there was a third type of square added, which was an orange square, and they were intermixed within the game board in some weird way, and the rules adjusted to incorporate these new orange squares or whatever. So you're playing a new game. The rules have changed, and you're playing a new game. Bitcoin is part of the game. It's not a player in the game. I hope that makes sense. Bitcoin is part of nature. So let's continue now that we have that background. Bitcoin is the greatest invention since the Gutenberg press. I agree with that. The Gutenberg press affected the game theory of how the church and state worked and how information was shared with the world. When Johannes Gutenberg invented his press, he was essentially moving his chess piece to checkmate the church. Um, I don't think the church and state were really separated. Okay. There depends what you mean by church. Um, if you mean like the salvation of your soul, then yes, that, uh, 
Well, not even that. I don't know if that has even been separated. So the idea is that the church made experts, right? The church made the priestly class, and they could read and write, and they were the source of truth. The church was the source of truth. Well, look at what we have today. We have government institutions as the source of truth, and government-backed and supported institutions like colleges. And those PhDs from those universities that work now at the government institutions, they are the experts. And what happens when you go against those experts? They are the approved source of truth. And actually, that is part of what's going on right now is the internet has broken that down. And Bitcoin has given us the financial means to continue to break that down. Um, but church and state really haven't been separated, if depending on how you look at it. But I do agree that the Gutenberg Press was a new weapon in the game. But it was the Gutenberg Press was not the game. It's like a player in the game. Just like Bitcoin is not a player. Bitcoin is a tool. Bitcoin is part of the, the new rules of the game. And everyone has to adjust to that. That's going to take... How long did it take for people to adjust to the new rules of the uh, printing press? 200 years? 300 years? We're still kind of adjusting to it. If you consider online print or online, yeah, online media as uh, continuing the, the legacy of the printing press. I mean, the printing press itself continued the legacy of reading and writing and the alphabet. So you could break this down to continue, you know, on and on and on. But no, it's all part of the game, not a player in the game. All right, let's keep going. Bitcoin has the same game theoretics as the Gutenberg Press, but it is working toward separating the state from money. Now let's envision a chessboard where the world's most powerful players, that is banks, governments, special interest groups, are playing on one side of the chessboard and Bitcoin is on the other. So this here, he's anthropomorphizing. Is that the word? Anthropomorphizing Bitcoin. Saying that Bitcoin is a player in the game when it's not. It's part of the board. So if these world's most powerful players are playing against Bitcoin, they are definitely going to lose. That's like in chess, playing against the black squares instead of the opponent on the other side of the board. You need to know who you're going against and... They're not going against Bitcoin. They're going against society, <laughs> going against everyone else. In the game of chess, there are two possible outcomes, stalemate or checkmate. There is no chance that Bitcoin will face a stalemate in its game against the world's most powerful players because the stalemate means that neither player wins or loses. A stalemate results when neither player can make a move that would result in the game progressing any further. The reason uh, the game cannot be stopped, okay? Chess is a finite game. It can be ended. There is an end to chess. There is no end to the game of <laughs> geopolitics or geoeconomics or whatever we're talking about here. There is no end to that. So there is no stalemate because you can always make change the rules. Like changing the rules is actually part of the game. It's it's a, a strategy within the game. Imagine if you're playing soccer and halfway through one of the teams one of the teams is losing ten to nothing. And so the losing team just says, Now we're gonna go toward a goal over here. And then they make up a new goal and they kick it in. 
right? Now it's 10 to one. And the, the team that's ahead is like, wait a second, you just changed the rules, blah, 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 blah. And then they say, oh yeah, well now each goal is worth 10 points. And they say, now it's here and they kick it and it goes in this imaginary goal. And they say, we're up 11 to one now we're winning. And the winning team's like, wait a second, I don't get it. And it takes them a long time. They, they will fight viciously, say, you're breaking the rules. That's not how you play the game. But then it takes them a while to think, oh, crap. I can make up my own imaginary goal, too, and kick it in. Look at that. This one, you know, and so the point of the game is to never have a winner and loser. Um, so that's, that's that was weird, but that's what we're kind of going with here. All right, uh, next part. Okay, I'm just going to go all the way down to the end and read this. Uh, in conclusion, the Bitcoin network will continue to operate no matter what the world's most powerful players say, do, or think. I 100% agree with that. Some of the greatest, most powerful entities like the IMF, China, United States, and ESG movement have tried to attack Bitcoin, but it will continue to move its chess pieces on the world's chessboard to counter every move because it is a beautifully engineered protocol. All those things they listed there, IMF, China, United States, ESG, with the exception possibly of the United States, those are new fads. When was the IMF created? I could look that up. I think it was after World War II. N yeah, yeah, 1944, the IMF was created. And China, or the CCP, was, what, 1949? And the ESG movement's brand new. Of course, all of these players are fads, except for, like I said, possibly the United States. And they were all built off of a previous system that was ending. This system is ending. The church, he said he brought in church and state earlier, but now the new church, which is expert class, now they are being broken away from the government as well, hopefully. And so we have these new fad agencies and institutions like the IMF and even the UN, they are going to be broken away, but not because of Bitcoin and Bitcoin's moves. Bitcoin is a new tool in the game, a new idea that people now can leverage within this infinite play. They no longer have to play by the rules of the IMF or even the banks for that matter. Bitcoin has changed the rules of the game. Okay, let's go back, uh, or let's go to his second piece here. And it is titled, Bitcoin's Game Theory Has Endless Possibilities, again by Jeremy Garcia. And he opens with, I mean, there's a few months separating these posts, so he starts again with the definition of game theory, and he says you must counter your opponent again. And we talked about that. But let's go with this. Undoubtedly, the countries with the highest inflation rates will adopt Bitcoin first and will be the greatest beneficiaries. Now, I disagree with this because right off the bat, it's empirically wrong. El Salvador, their currency is the U.S. dollar, which isn't the highest of inflation rates. They adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. Tonga, I hope they're doing well. I haven't heard any updates on Tonga recently in the last couple of weeks. But uh, Tonga has had a very stable currency for the last couple decades, and they were talking about adopting Bitcoin as legal tender. Um, I guess Russia, who has recently been friendly to Bitcoin, not adopting it or anything like that, 
they have relatively high inflation, especially right now. Uh, I wouldn't call it inflation, though. I would call it just a crash in the value of the ruble. No, this is, this is empirically wrong. I actually think it's the other way around, which we'll get into. Countries like the U.S. may take a longer time as they will be will still be hyperinflating their currencies with their powerful seniorage they hold. When the superpowers do eventually adopt Bitcoin, all the countries who adopt it first will get an economic boost and be lifted to a more even playing field with the most powerful countries. This is how powerful Bitcoin can be for a country who willingly accepts it. Now, this is a good way to view Bitcoin, not as a player, but Bitcoin is being powerfully used as a tool for a country. But I disagree with this whole idea that, one, the U.S. will take a longer time. I think the U.S. is going to be one of the first adopters of Bitcoin, whether that's in, you know, near years or decades down the road. I think the U.S. will be one of the first. But I have a major problem with leveling the playing field. I don't think Bitcoin levels the playing field. All right. Now, in a free market, in a pure, moral, free market, there are winners and losers, right? Or there are rich and poor. Countries exist pretty close to an anarchic-type relationship with each other, and there are rich and poor countries. I'm not saying that rich countries don't exploit poor countries, but poor countries also somewhat exploit rich countries. Look at how much foreign aid the U.S. gives out. And that's off of the back of the U.S. taxpayer. So there is something to be said for the U.S. actually lifting up certain parts of the world. And that, that is just explicitly. There's also this implicit bias in the money itself. So how do you do economic advancement in a country? You borrow, right? You borrow and spend. The Austrian or sound money people, the frugal people will say, no, first you save then you spend. But it's very hard to save up if you're starting from nothing, right? And that, that's one thing too about Bitcoin and saying that Bitcoin will raise up the poor countries is that somebody that's putting away $1 of Bitcoin a week in this poor country, they are going to benefit from Bitcoin for sure. Because yes, their savings will not be depleted and they can save and then build up their country and, and start a business or do whatever. That's true. But that millionaire or billionaire in the West, in a developed nation, is going to benefit much more from Bitcoin because they can, they can buy a lot more Bitcoin. They can also earn a lot more Bitcoin. So they are going to benefit drastically more. The rich people will benefit drastically more from Bitcoin than the poor people. Now, it depends on what you measure that by. Is a, somebody that has a $1 billion net wealth that doubles it to $2 billion, that's drastically more than a poor person doubling their net worth from $1,000 to $2,000. So how do you measure that, though? Like, more people have been pulled out of poverty in the last 50 years, right, than ever in the history of mankind. How did that do, or how did they do that? Through credit. They did it through expansion of credit. The poor countries actually benefited way more 
from a hyper-elastic credit market than in the many thousands of years of history with sounder money. So it's the, the credit that actually brought a lot of these third world countries into being developing nations and emerging markets. That was enabled through the expansion of credit, strictly because we have this huge credit-based system. When we go off of a credit-based system back to a sound money system, there will still be credit. People will still lend Bitcoin, and just like they lent gold and all this stuff. So there still will be credit, but it will be a lot less. There won't be as much of the entire system won't be built on expanding credit. So it actually could harm, Bitcoin could harm, in a way, these poor countries. These emerging markets could go back and regress to third world nations because there won't be as much credit available for them. Anyway, I'm getting way off track here. Let's get back to this. Um, so yes, if a country does adopt Bitcoin early, it will provide an initial boost. I do agree with that. It will provide an initial boost. But, you know, just as most lottery winners are broke or dead five years after they won the lottery, you know, it's very hard to maintain wealth. It's very hard to maintain wealth. So these small countries, they might get ahead initially, but then there will be problems, you know, more money, more problems. Maybe they get overthrown. Maybe they get invaded, you know, pick the wrong fight, act a little bit too cocky in the wrong neighborhood, and they get in a fight. There's a number of things that can destroy what they just got, quote unquote, lucky doing by, by getting into Bitcoin early. So it's very hard to maintain wealth. Very hard. And how do the rich stay rich? Well, yes, they can work the system. Yes, that's true. Um, but a lot of them stay rich by continually providing economic productivity. The rich are rich because they are more productive. Not in that they work harder, but they simply provide more benefit. Some people can work just as hard, but some people get way ahead. And some people barely get off the starting block. So these countries that will get an economic boost, supposedly the poor countries that are going to adopt Bitcoin, which I highly doubt, but let's say they do, they adopt Bitcoin and they get this initial economic boost. It's going to be hard to maintain that. They're probably going to spend it and send it to the United States or send it to the more developed nations. That's how these things usually go. And I don't mean to laugh at the situation, but that's, that's how it usually is. All right, what's next? He says, small countries in Latin America, Africa, and many other regions of the world whose money is collapsing will be anxious and excited watching the progress of Bitcoin. They stand to benefit the most from it. I've detailed out why that's not the case. They actually will most likely lose from Bitcoin. And they, the people are looking at Bitcoin excitedly. Look, here's a great sound money that can't be used to inflate and exploit me. But the rulers of those places aren't excited about it. They'll actually, why would they want to do that? All right, moving on here. The U.S. will be forced to adopt Bitcoin as a defensive move. Otherwise, its world reserve currency status could be lost. 
Yeah, I, I do think that they'll be forced to adopt Bitcoin, but everybody will be. Just like any game you're playing and somebody uses some new tool and starts being unbeatable, then everyone's going to start using that tool. He continues, Bitcoin will serve as a defensive and offensive move to allow the U.S. to retain its status as a superpower. Now, I don't agree with this. The U.S. will always be a superpower for the foreseeable future, and this is just a geopolitical and geoeconomic certainty. The U.S. is the best location on the planet, hands down. Because of its geography, its natural resources, its defensibility, its access to oceans, its waterways, um, soil, everything. It is the best place on the planet, geographically. And so it's always going to be a superpower. If it loses its world reserve currency status, which kind of goes hand in hand with this, it's impossible to lose the world reserve currency status because of its geographic superiority. So the U.S. will not ever fail to be a superpower in the foreseeable future. And by that rationale, its currency will be the world reserve currency. So if it is, if Bitcoin becomes a world reserve currency, then Bitcoin will be the currency of the United States. That is, all of these things go together. All right. He ends the, ends this with this quote here. Rulers do not want to allow for Bitcoin. Why would the rulers of the world not desire a world like this? The simple answer is that the fiat world in the fiat world, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. In a Bitcoin world, all people are treated fairly because the money is. And then he says, open to all, immutable, universal, uh, ungovernable, fair, empowering. That's a little bit of a fairy tale world, okay? Because the world is not going to be fair just because of Bitcoin. Um, the world, there will still be inequality. There will still be hierarchy in society uh, and in the economy. Um, so the rich will still get richer. The poor could get poorer as well. Like I said, talked at the beginning of this episode that Bitcoin might actually make poor countries poorer because we are taking away easy credit, which is what built them up in the first place over the last 50, 75 years. And that's going to do it for today, guys. Thank you for joining me. Check out my Twitter at Ansel Lindner, and we'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>